Well, good morning. Let me invite you again to join me in your Bibles in John chapter 12. We'll begin reading in just a few minutes in, at verse 20, John 12, 20. As you're turning there, let me just give a quick uh, note of clarification regarding the vote for the uh, following the annual business meeting that will take place right after the service. Uh, we do invite votes from both members and regular attending non-members. It's because it's very helpful to us to just have a general sense of, of, uh, of the response there. However, it's only the votes from members that are counted in a way that's considered binding. So just be aware of the distinction there, but we do invite those, that feedback. John 12, uh, you may have noticed in the bulletin, uh, we, I'm calling this a part two. So in a way, continuing from last week as we're looking at the mystery of Christ, our outline this morning is not a continuation of last week's outline. But I've phrased it this way because as we're going to see, the concept of the mystery of Christ that we started to see last week and that we went to Ephesians 2 and her descriptions of, that concept very much continues to be drawn out for a long time in this chapter. In fact, it will go beyond our verses this morning. I hope you remember what we saw from Paul concerning the mystery of Christ, what he calls the mystery of Christ, really comes down to a few key realities. It comes down to the reality of the necessity of Christ's death on the cross in payment of sin, and the subsequent result that what has happened is that both Jew and Gentile together have been reconciled to God. The wall of division has been broken down, and you have now one body in place of the two, so securing peace. That's how he describes the work of Christ on the cross. So we have death of Christ, we have Jew, we have Gentile all coming into play in this news of what God has accomplished through his Son. Well, what we'll find this morning in verses 23 to 26 is a focus and explanation upon the death of Christ. Then in 27 to 33, focus is going to be placed upon the Gentiles as a particular defeat of Satan is predicted. And we're going to get into next week as we look at that some very interesting things, questions even of eschatology, uh, matters in the book of Revelation, some potentially controversial matters. So don't miss it. Don't fail to be here for that. Uh, but after verse 33, coming into verse 34, and really down to verse 43, Paul's going to move then to a description of the Jews and the Jews' place in all of this. And he'll describe a necessary hardening of the Jews in what's about to transpire. So, And we'll look at each of those in turn to understand them better. But this is what's coming to us as we continue to walk forward in this chapter. And so I hope you can see why I want us to keep thinking of what we're seeing in terms of a revelation of the mystery of Christ. This morning, though, we'll only look at the first of those three elements, verses 23 to 26. Uh, but I'd have us begin by hearing all of this together, both this week and next. So I'm going to read to us verses 20 to 43. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. If you're able, please stand with me for the reading of God's Word. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. 
So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said, an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So the crowd answered him, we have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? So Jesus said to them, The light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. Walk while you have the light. Excuse me. While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of light. When Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him, so that the words spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore, they could not believe. For again, Isaiah said, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Nevertheless, many even of the authorities believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees they did not confess it, so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. If you haven't been reading ahead or glancing ahead, I hope that hearing that gives you a sense that we have quite a bit coming at us here in this chapter. This is a consequential chapter. In verse 23, Jesus says a thing that requires some explanation. And it's the thing that he then uses our verses this morning in order to explain. The thing that he says is, he says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Now, the fact that that needs explanation is clear simply from the misunderstandings that we talked about last week. 
the crowd here, and even the true believers among the crowd, don't yet understand the nature of the victory that Christ is coming to bring. I read someone speculate this week, and that's all it was, was speculation. But it was an interesting thought to me. They wondered how many people who were standing there, as Jesus said these words in verse 23. I mean, think of what's just happened. Think of the religious fervor that has brought him into Jerusalem on this foal of a donkey. The proclamations of kingship and messiahship that we saw last week. Think of that happening. And then those nearest him who can hear him, hearing him say the words, the time has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. The speculation was this. I wonder how many people, their eyes maybe shot up into the sky at that moment to see if angelic warriors were descending from heaven to surround Jesus right then and there and march with him into the city to seize power. I mean, can you imagine... What it, what it might have felt like if you did not understand the victory Christ was coming to bring and you heard him say himself, it's time for me to be glorified, where your mind might go. But anyone who thought that way was disappointed, weren't they? No angelic warriors coming down from heaven. And they really shouldn't have been surprised because Jesus, after all, has entered Jerusalem on You could say the animal embodiment of peace. He has come riding on the foal of a donkey in a very clear demonstration of a king bringing not war, but peace. He will come again. At his second coming, he will not be on the foal of a donkey, will he? He'll be on a tall, white war horse with a sword. In his hand... But that's not what he's coming with in his first coming. And the way he entered the city was a demonstration of the peace he was coming to bring. So they would have missed that if they were thinking in that kind of way. Another thing they would have missed, though, if they were thinking like that, is they they would have missed the way that Jesus worded this statement in verse 23. What we heard him say was, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified passive voice. He has not come to glorify himself. He has not come to grab glory for himself. And in fact, he said this already. In John 8, 50, he made clear that he was not seeking his own glory. It was the Father who was seeking Jesus' glory. And he says to them here, and he says to us, that the hour has come for him to be glorified by the Father. And that is the context that we have to have in mind as we hear what he says in verses 24 to 26. Because what we're going to see this morning is he's not just telling us why the Father is going to glorify him. But in fact, what he proceeds to do is to explain, to give explanations to us that go beyond even just himself. He is explaining how anyone receives glory or honor from God. And everything that he's going to say here is going to center around a particular analogy that he makes in verse 24. So this is what we'll see this morning. There are three points to this. Number one, we'll see in verse 24 an analogy given that describes Jesus' path. Secondly, in verse 25, we'll see that analogy applied 
both to Christ and in general. And then thirdly, in verse 26, we'll see that analogy applied to describe the path of God's people. This is an analogy that has quite a bit of work to do. Jesus is going to use it to point out many things to us. First, beginning to look in verse 24, we, we need to hear this analogy that he's giving and understand it. And I'm suggesting that, first and foremost, it's an analogy that describes the path that Jesus is self-consciously taking through his entire earthly ministry and now in a special way as he marches into Jerusalem, knowing what's coming. Notice first that Jesus feels pretty strongly about our understanding of this analogy. Anytime you, anytime you hear Jesus say anything, you should pay close attention. But if he opens with the words, truly, truly, I say to you, then he's going out of his way to tell you to pay attention. So really take in the analogy that he gives here. Verse 24, truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Now again, through all of this this morning, we have to keep in mind that he is explaining the statement he just said right before, that the hour has come for him to be glorified. That's what leads him to give this analogy and to explain it. And as we think about it, one of the first things we usually notice, rightly, is that he is bringing up now into their minds, as they're thinking about his being glorified, he's bringing up the notion of death with this analogy. And we who are on this side of the cross now, we understand how integral his death is going to be to his receipt of glory. It will, in fact, be a moment of his glory, and it will be the central point on the, part, on the way to his, his ultimate glory. In fact, there's really even debate, and many people will, will argue about whether in John his glory should be thought of exclusively as pointing to the cross, or whether it's when John speaks of his glory, whether he's talking about the whole package with the cross as a central moment of glory. That's the debate. But there is no question that death is, in fact, central to what Jesus is telling us to expect as the Father is going to glorify him. Here in verse 24, what we need to understand is that the line he's drawing isn't so much between glory and death itself, any kind of death, but rather he's drawing us a line between glory and a particular kind of death. Notice the image that he gives us here. It's the image of a grain of wheat. Imagine holding that grain of wheat in your hand. You've got some options of what you can do with it. What, what is the future that that particular piece of grain has? Inevitably, its future is some kind of death isn't it? I could put it in a jar on my counter and save it in that way, and after some time it would rot. I could pop it in my mouth, I suppose, and eat it. And either way, for that piece of grain, that would be that. Its usefulness would have ended at that point. This is what he means in verse 24 when he says, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, in other words, if it dies like that, by being put into the earth, it bears much fruit. 
you see that the dying at issue here really is speaking about a particular kind of dying. It has to do with a willingness to be sacrificed for a purpose. The willingness to be used up in order to produce fruit. This is the picture that Jesus is giving us. If we're putting human characteristics into that piece of grain, if we're personifying it, then what it's doing is it's voluntarily choosing to surrender itself in order to be used for someone else's purposes. And when it does so like this, what Jesus says is that it bears much fruit. Think of that in terms of the life that's represented there. The, you could say the life of that piece of grain is given up, but as a result of that willing self-sacrifice, the life of grain continues and even increases as a crop of fruit is born and that grain uh, increases. That's the analogy that we see in verse 24. An analogy that speaks not just to death, but to a particular kind of death. Now, starting in verse 25, the analogy is then applied. And he takes the picture that I suggested of dropping that grain of wheat into a jar, saving it on your counter. He likens that idea to someone, he says, loving his life. And he gives us a couple of ways that help us to understand that when he says loving his life, Jesus is speaking about preference, preferring this life over the life that is to come. That's clear from how verse 25 ends. Can you see that? Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. It's a statement about how I prioritize this life as opposed to the next. And even the love and hate language he gives is helping to point to that notion of priority. Love and hate used like this, these are Semitic Jewish ways of talking about preferences, higher or lesser preference, priorities. So the picture here, whoever loves his life loses it. The picture is of someone who says, I love this life. I will not give my life over to be at the disposal of another. I will protect and cherish my own autonomy in this particular instance. And of that mentality, what our Lord tells us is, he says, whoever loves his life loses it. It's a very clarifying statement for us, and we need to hear this clarity, because what he's really simply doing is making a statement about reality. If you are determined to prioritize as the highest good and goal what pleases you in this life, this body, this age that we're living in, the problem is you don't understand the nature of this age, of this place. You're actually waging a war against reality itself. This place, this age, is utterly temporary by definition. And there's not a thing that you or I can do about it. The life that you love that is this life is a life that you're going to lose. But what's more, and it's really the point of this analogy, isn't it? Not just that you're going to lose this life, but that in that case, you will have lost it in a way that gained or produced nothing to come after it. Now, that's just fine 
if there is nothing to come after it. It's the point that Paul made himself in 1 Corinthians 15, 32. He said, if the dead are not raised, then let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. See, this is what the resurrection of Christ is going to do. It's going to give us definitive assurance that this analogy accurately describes what is at stake in this life. That this life, in fact, has implications for a life that is to come. And what Christ declares about life, this one and the next, is this. Whoever loves his life in this world loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Now let's remember that this is first and foremost here a statement about Jesus. He's explaining what he said in verse 23 about the Son of Man preparing to be glorified. He does present what he says here as something of a general principle because it is a general principle. But the Son of Man's fulfilling this principle is what Jesus is attributing to the fact that he is to receive glory. So what we're finding here about our Lord is that the glory that he receives stems not just from a dying, but from the fact that he died because he was willing to submit to his Father's will fundamentally. So purely was he devoted to his Father that he did not grasp at this earthly life. He did not grasp at his rights. He didn't grasp at his self-preservation. He was willing to be spent to be poured out in service to God in the particular role that he had been assigned. Maybe the simplest and clearest statement of that is what we find in Philippians 2, 6 and following. Let me read this, and as I read it, just hear it and notice the ties that Paul makes there between Jesus' willingness that culminated even to the point of death, even death on a cross. The tie between his willingness to submit to his Father and be used in that way. And the connection between all of that and the glory that Jesus received. Here's what we read in Philippians 2. It speaks of our Lord and it says, Though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Now the next word is the word therefore. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. My friends, what we hear is that Jesus earned something by his obedience in the particular role that he played in God's economy of redemption. He came to this earth occupying a position of what we call federal headship. Just like Adam in the garden. And just like Adam's actions earned death for the whole human race. Because that is the wages of sin, isn't it? The wages of sin is death. Just like Adam's actions earned death for the whole human race, all whom he represents, 
So Jesus, in his obedience, earned glory and life eternal. And thus the honor that Christ receives is unique in that sense. It is different from the honor that we would receive. His name will be praised above every other name, won't it? My name will not be praised above every other name, nor will yours. And yet, can you see what's coming at the end of verse 26? We haven't gotten there yet, but you can see it. There's a coming promise to us of honor from the Father. So based on what we just said about Jesus earning something, what are we to think about that honor? Is that something that we have earned too, like Jesus has earned? The short answer is no, it is not. But short answers are often very unhelpful, depending on the question that's being asked. I think the better answer is really what we're going to see in verse 26. And it's that there is a difference between what we might call direct honor and derived honor. There's an honor that is mine directly, and there's an honor that is derived. I remember a picture that we got, I forget how long ago this was now, when the men's discipleship group on Saturdays went through the book, The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment. Just a great book and a great time together. But one of the things he, one of the pictures he paints early in that book is he talks about the notion of warmth. And the difference between two men, to think of a man who is warm because of the natural heat of his body. Right? So even he, and, and he describes this, that man in the morning puts on cold clothes and they're cold for a bit, but after a while they warm. How'd that happen? Well, his body warmed them up. That man compared to a man who is ill, who that man can get warm if he sits by the fire and warms himself up. But if he goes away from the fire, then he quickly grows cold again. It strikes me that that's, that's not an unhelpful picture in what we're describing here about honor. There's a difference between direct honor and derived honor. And what we find in a, what I'm calling a derived honor kind of situation is that there's a necessary for us proximity to Christ for that honor to be found. And in fact, that's where Jesus goes next. Look at verse 26. This is what he says. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Verses 24 to 26 are tied together. 24 and 25 is what Jesus is about to do. It's where Jesus is walking and where he's about to walk. A common way to say that is to say Jesus is about to take up his cross, isn't he? He has been walking the obedient path that will lead literally to the cross and his own death. But we've seen that the reality of that path all the way along, even before the cross, is that it was all along a path of self-denial. A path of placing himself utterly at the disposal of his God and Father. As he says over and over, I have not come to do my own will, but to do the will of him who sent me. That's the path that Jesus walks. It's a path that passes through 
danger, through loss of popularity, through slander, through betrayal, through all manner of temporal loss. This is the path that Jesus walks. And this is where our third point this morning comes in, as verse 26 brings God's people into the matter. Because what he says to us in verse 26 is this, if anyone would serve me, he must follow me. And I'd suggest he's putting to us the same idea that is captured by Matthew in Matthew 10, 38, when it records Jesus saying there, whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. And if you think that, he's make, that Matthew's making a different point than what we find here, guess what the next sentence in Matthew 10 is from our Lord? The, the next one is this, whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. I don't know about you, but that sounds exactly like verse 25 of our passage this morning. But see, the point as we are brought into this picture, is not that we too are earning a standing before God as we do so. In fact, the point is far simpler than that. The point is that God's people want to be with Jesus. We have come to see him for who he is because the Spirit of God has opened our eyes to see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. We've come to believe that he is the Holy One of God. And therefore, we've seen, because of what God has shown us, that there is nowhere else for us to go. Because he alone has the words of life. And so we have chosen to follow the light of the world, where it leads, to walk after him. And the result, as verse 26 mentions next, is that we are with him. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. Now again, this helps us to hear him rightly when he ends by saying, if anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. It is true, divine glory and honor will fall upon the followers of Christ. But it won't be because we have earned. It will be because we have drawn near to the one who earned. It is a derived honor, a derived glory that comes to those who have been brought near to Christ. And this is an emphasis that is all over Paul's letters. This connection between our being uh, caught up with Christ in the benefits of his work and our being united with him in our lives. Romans 6, 5, if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Romans 8, 17, we are, as God's people, fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him, in order that we may also be glorified with him. 2 Corinthians 4, 17, this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. And maybe your mind goes to many other places similar to these. But it does beg the question for us. Those last two verses I read to you spoke of our suffering with him 
and affliction in this life? How are our sufferings and our afflictions playing in? They don't earn our glorification. It's not what Paul's describing at all. What they are is they are an inevitability if we are united to Christ. Because to be united with him means that where he goes, I will follow. It's our union with him that means everything. And what God is holding out to us in his promise in the gospel. The necessary reality that Jesus is getting at here is that if I am united to him, I will go where he leads. And so verse 26 gives us these dual realities. It promises us that we who are united to Christ by faith will walk the path that he has walked. Like him, we will have to take up our cross and follow him. But what is the end of that path? A path that involves taking up our cross is not a path that sounds appealing. And as we'll see next week, in those temporal ways, it does not sound appealing to our Lord either. His soul is troubled at the prospect of what's ahead of him. But the question is, where does that path lead? What's the end of that path? It's the end to which Jesus himself is zealously marching. It's the end of glory. Now, if we have heard him correctly here, then what we're doing is we're weighing in our minds two realities that he has said are really one reality. They are the reality here, verse 26, of future certain glory and the necessity, verses 24 and 25, of embracing a path of death. And as we've seen, that doesn't mean death in general. What it means is it's describing a particular kind of willing self-sacrifice in order to be used up so that fruit would be born as a result. For Jesus, of course, that willingness compelled him to the cross, to a quite literal, gruesome death. Because he has come, in particular, as the redeemer of mankind, as the Passover lamb whose blood will, in fact, wash away sin. That's what the willing submission to God in that path looked like for him. For us, walking that path may lead all the way to laying down our lives. But whether it does or doesn't, the path is still properly called by the name death. Because the kind of death it's referring to is a path of self-denial. A path of dying to ourselves. There's all kinds of ways we use to describe this call that God gives to his people. To die to ourselves. And my friends, we would be remiss this morning if we were given this text by our Lord today and didn't pause to think about the way that we're handling whatever particular season we find ourselves in right now. This is a wonderful opportunity from our Lord to bring to our remembrance these things, to to be in some ways introspective. There's a real danger to being overly introspective because when God saves us, he casts our gaze to Christ. He fixes our hope there. But there's a real danger to being utterly, having no introspection in our lives as well. And this can protect us from that. Do we want to know how we would serve our Lord? 
Well, he tells us right here. If someone would serve me, let him follow me. We ought to expect that the best teacher the world has ever seen would know how to put something so simple as that. If someone would serve me, let him follow me. What is the path that I have walked? Let him be ready to walk that path. Follow him into the analogy that Jesus is using here in this context. The analogy of the grain that lays itself down in order to have fruit borne by it. We love God because of his work in us. And so we are willing to be used up so that he might produce fruit through us. There's so many ways and contexts in our lives where this comes out. It comes out really in any relationship that we find ourselves in. That's an easy one. Think of familiar relationships. If he gives us a spouse, we put another before ourselves and we serve self-sacrificially according to the role that he has assigned us. If he gives us children, we put others before ourselves and serve self-sacrificially according to the role that he has assigned us. And both then, only insofar as it reflects our desire to serve Christ. Because that's who we're pouring ourselves out for, is our Lord. If he gives us a call to singleness in our life, we are, in fact, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7, we are uniquely situated to pour ourselves out self-sacrificially in devotion to God according to the roles that he has placed us in in our lives. And those are just broad examples from the realm of family relationships. What about ways uniquely afforded to us to approach our life self-sacrificially in service to God for the sake of his fruit in particular seasons of life, in times of health or illness, in certain occupations, in certain times of strife and conflict, If we're living in a way that we are looking to follow after Christ and we find ourselves in the midst of strife and conflict, well, there's a very particular set of ways that that's going to shape how I plan to walk in those days to come. Because I want to follow my Lord. We see here how we can sum up God's call to us really with a single word. It's the word love. So long as we define that word biblically and not emotionally or psychologically or something like that. Love at its core is a willingness to lay down self for someone else. And we get that definition straight out of 1 John chapter 3. He wrote there in verse 16, by this we know love, colon. He didn't put the colon, but it fits. By this we know love, colon that he laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. If God has shown us that he is our greatest good, then we follow after Christ because what he has shown us is that Christ is the lover of our soul and therefore he becomes the one that we love above all else. I would have us end this morning by reminding us all of what the end of verse 24 says. It said that much fruit is born as a result of this picture. Do you see that there? My friends, 
he is speaking first and foremost, as we've seen, about himself and what he is about to accomplish. We who are in Christ Jesus, we are that fruit. We are the fruit of his labors. We are the fruit of him dying and pouring out his blood for the sake of his people to ransom us. This is what we hear, Revelation 5, 9. By his blood, he ransomed a people for God. John 3, 3 tells us that being in Christ Jesus requires that we be born again. Ephesians 2, we who are recreated in Jesus are what he calls his workmanship. As we cry out to God for salvation in Christ Jesus, as we love him, as we trust him and seek to walk after him, what we're finding is the fruit of Jesus' labor. And while we walk and labor in this world, in these bodies, in this life, it becomes ever more clear to us that we are not our own fruit. We are not safe in God's hands because of the good that we have done in this life. It's just abundantly clear to us. We are in constant battle, aren't we? James 3 says of us that we all stumble in many ways. James 3, 2. And what we're describing when we hear those things is we are describing the church. The church is a group of people called out by God, washed by the blood of Christ, who continues to stumble in many ways, but who is now engaged in a battle against the flesh. Because it's a group of people who longs to follow after their Lord. This is what the church is, a body of many members, each one having been profoundly humbled by an awareness of our ongoing indwelling sin. But each of us, by the, by the power of God through his spirit, each of us committed to walking after our Lord, in fact, committed to linking arms with each other as we do this. This is the body of Christ. And that has everything to do with what we proceed to do together this morning as his people, as we share together at the Lord's table. Because what all of that means about us, about you and me, if you are in Christ, is that we are a body of people who by God's grace are not characterized by a love of this world. We look around together and say, we have no lasting home here. We have been shown together by our Lord that we belong with those of Hebrews 11 because we confess together that we are strangers and exiles on this earth. We are seeking a country of our own. God's word says of them that he's describing and of us as well in Hebrews 11:16. They desire a better country. That is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. My friends, thoughts like those prepare us well for the table. Because at the Lord's table, even as we'll hear shortly, we are sharing together in our remembrance of our Lord. We're sharing together in our proclamation of his death for sinners. We're acting out, living out our confidence that there is in fact a family meal in our future to which we have a standing invitation. Because in his mercy, God has washed us clean by Jesus' blood. 
and adopted us into his very family. And it's that identity of being called out of the world by our Lord. It's that identity that we demonstrate through the ordinance of the Lord's Supper. Let's prepare to do that together.